as a good friend of mine would say. Okay. Welcome everybody to the Del Kokoro podcast. I'm joined by Umi. Umi. Yeah, I said hi. Did you? I did. I, didn't, oh, yeah, I, I could did, try again. I, I couldn't get a good inhale. My lungs been acting up lately. Um, so sorry. I'm joined by Umi. Hi. And today we have a special guest, Proton Storm, also known as the admin and our uh, great leader of Anate. I feel like Dex gets to be the great leader, but I am an admin. That's true. I mean, you're basically the the mastermind behind everything right now. Yeah. There's a little bit of truth to that, at least for like the articles and stuff. Yeah, carrying all the weight. Um. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I've been really excited. I know you and I have talked about uh, doing this pod for a while. Um, I wanted Umi to come along because I know this would be a topic of great interest to her too. <laughs> um, before we get into your experiences in the great country of Japan... Yes. What have you been watching, reading, as far as our great uh, anime manga sphere that we're all in? Well, um, so the most recent thing that I've watched, I think, like yesterday, I watched the second episode of um, Kaguya Season 2. Is that the one everyone's been buzzing about? I think so. Um, I don't know how if it's been like really big in the chat, but I know that it's probably like one of the most what do you call like the most hyped anime of this season? Because usually, you know, th- sequels of shows that were popular tend to be like even more popular on like the, when you go to like anachart.net. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've been watching that. It's a really great adaptation of my favorite manga. Um, and it's got a lot of like rewatchability. So even knowing all the bits, uh, it's still funny. And the other thing is they, they add a lot. It's like they, they might take like um, a chapter of the manga and they'll put it in the anime, but they'll add a lot of like sections to it. So like one example is in the first episode of season two, there's they, they, they like adapt a chapter where basically like Kaguya tells um, Hayasaka, do not let anyone into the student council room. And then Hayasaka in like the chapter of the manga, Hayasaka does has like funny interactions with several people who try to enter the room. But in the, in the um, anime, they have like a beginning, an opening scene to the chapter where they have Hayasaka like flip like in a spy suit like flipping over some like lasers and stuff in order to swap out the um the um shirogane is like coffee with decaf Mm -hmm. and so in the manga that like switch to decaf to get him to fall asleep was something that happened in like a couple of panels but they make it like some big animated scene um in the anime so there's a lot of like additions like that Uh, and it's very it's very well done and there's clearly like as far as a1 studios productions go it's got quite a bit of money behind it i feel uh so that's been nice and um i'm also reading the manga the latest volume of it just came out uh like two days ago i've actually got it like right by my bed right here that's what's so wild to me is that you get like the japanese manga and you can read it i know that's like kind of just the norm over there but <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean it took yeah when we were working together at Takeoban, um you mm-hmm. would tell me you're like, hey, I just got this volume of this, and it's really f- a fun experiment to like uh, figure out what I can figure, what I can read, and what I can need to look up, and that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it took a while, right? Like, um, as, as you know, because so when I first started, when I first joined Anita in 2014, I mean, I was in high school, and I did not 
know any Japanese at all. Uh, and I, I honestly, I don't even think I had any like formal plans to start studying it at that point. Um, but then I started taking the classes as a hobby freshman year of college, switched it to my major, ended up graduating with a degree in it. Um, and, you know, now I'm living over here. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely like I remember buying. So Kaguya is actually really hard to read relative to other manga. Um, really? It's very yeah, it's really, really deliberately high vocab um like they use Hmm. so like on the jlpt scale so the japanese language proficiency test um there's level like n1 is like the highest level and n5 is the lowest and they have a lot of stuff that isn't even necessarily included in n1 sometimes just like really high level vocab very frequently and a lot of stuff they do have is literally like n1 level material so there's a lot of dialogue and dialogue is always easier to read than prose but it's still even within the dialogue because you know they're they're in like this not like this high high class, class academy yeah. and so they just deliberately play it up and the other thing is that i think that the writing in this manga is a little bit like in a way sometimes the humor is like a slightly more like highbrow version of what you might see in other similarly styled series and the language in the original japanese tends to reflect that so when i was um i think i was studying like fourth year like collegiate fourth year level japanese this was summer of my sophomore year and i was in kyoto and Mm -hmm. i remember buying the first volume of kaguya and i could not read it really yeah so it is it is real and nowadays i I have no problems reading it but it is really high level like because at that point i was studying i wasn't quite into like i was in between n3 and n2 and it was not really readable like you kind of I think to even really begin to approach Kagura, you probably need N2. To read it without having to use a dictionary, you probably need closer to um, an N1 level vocab, I would say. I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to pin it down exactly because obviously the people writing this have no idea what the JLPT even is. So it's not like they're catering to foreigners when they're writing it. Sure. I know I, everybody thinks that I hate that show, but it's just... <laughs> It's one of those shows that the gifts get, they make one too many rounds. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the other thing, in fairness, is that um, now in my, pers- in my personal opinion, I think that even in the beginning, it is uh, in the upper tiers of like romantic comedy style, you know, like shows. But mm-hmm. it is one of those, I, I think that especially, I know that you do like other romantic comedies, so it's a little bit of a different thing with, in your case. But if there are people who don't usually like that kind of humor, then they're, I mean, they're not going to like Kaguya-san most likely. Sure. Um, but it does, it kind of goes like above and beyond that as the series progresses. And so I think that like even people who maybe are only like lukewarm on romantic comedies, if they like the romance, if they like romance stuff, then there's actually quite a bit for them once you get a couple of volumes into this. And I mean, the further you get, the more heavily like romantic the um the story gets so it's it's actually it's very good on both the comedy and the romance which is unusual i would say for a lot of these sort of romantic comedy series where they kind of like just dip their toes in the water here and there right and it's like you're in volume 20 and they can't even hold hands you know (laughs) oh man uh as far as i know you did the annotate first impressions on villainous um oh yeah yeah I just started watching that. Uh, I was trying to do prep. I mean, as of the time we're recording this, 
um, I did the, I was on for hybrid hosting the uh, Anate podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I caught up on that in Tower of God. Um, oh yeah, Tower of God. I have thoughts on both, but I sticking with Villainous though, uh, a lot more enjoyable than I expected. Mm. I mean, like I just, I just kind of thought here's our, our next run at this season's Isekai. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, I don't know, like Luigi. I told Luigi on air. I said that the only thing I didn't really like was the opening, and he gasped. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It just I'm fine with isekais if they can be somewhat creative and have likable characters, kind of like what this one's doing. Yeah, no, uh, there was a point in time where Isekai was, like, some of my favorite stuff. I mean, it was probably back, like, 2016. Before, I mean, you know, and back in 2016, you'd see more, like, the magic high schools than Isekai. And, you know, you, there'd be shows like Grimgar and ReZero that I really thought would, like, push boundaries and be interesting. Um, but it's just, you know, things get, like, too inundated. And I don't think I've seen an Isekai that's made me, like, really excited for probably since 2016. But I mean, Villainous is definitely, I think it's capable. I'm not sure that I like it as much as some other people on Annotate do, do, because some people it's kind of like the show of the season for them. And I think it's competent. And and that's more than I can say about other Isekai shows, but I'm not like head over heels for it either. So I'm curious if the reason that it is so highly valued this season is because it's good it looks like it's going to be one of the only shows that gets a full run this season i think that that's part of it um and i also think though that there i mean there are a lot of people on anate who i think have more patience with the isekai genre than i do um and so for people who consistently watch quite a few shows um that are isekai it's probably even more refreshing for them to see something that you know, meaningfully differs from the norm, if you will. And um, what I will say, though, is I've heard, um, and I I was excited. I think that it it has that, right, the ultimate game, like, background, because she's transported to an ultimate game as a villainess, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, um, not only is it kind of original, but it was also, like, it's it's not just, like, a gimmick, like the time where the guy has, like, a cell phone and that one Isek guy. It's, like, it's it's something, (laughs) it's... Her, her vil- being the villainous and having her knowledge of the game is something that is utilized on multiple levels by the show, so in, like, meaningful ways. And so that's what I like about it. Um, but what I will say is that I've heard that it's become, like, this is the first one getting an anime adaptation. It was kind of, like, the first to start this trend. But apparently, and having gone and looked at manga in stores recently, I can confirm that this appears to be true. There are a lot of a subgenre of isekai that's really becoming huge is like being reincarnated as the villainous of an ultimate game isekai. Like there's tons of series coming out about that right now. And I just, I, as you know, and those, I, I don't know if they'll all end up getting anime adaptations, but there is a chance that we're going to get like a wave of them a year or two from now. And it's not going to be very fun or original the second, third, fourth, or God forbid fifth time. Oh my goodness. Umi, uh, Proton, like six months ago told us, what was the one thing the uh, executive said about what gets published now? It either is an isekai, like if you want anything published, it has to be an isekai. Is, is oh, now- what was that? Yeah, um, it was isekai, or um, I think like high school 
romance, romantic comedy, romantic drama sort of thing. It was, I forget what it was. It was something, it was something along those lines, but you like cannot try to publish something that doesn't at least arguably fit into one of those two categories most of the time, especially for major publishers. So I hope you like that because that's going to be the next decade of anime. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but I do want to specify though, that it's, it's specifically what we would call like light novels in Mm -hmm. the United States that are under that obviously like novel and like publishing in general in Japan is there's a lot more things that they can publish than that. But you know, this, the subsection of pop culture that we see getting translated frequently in um, brought to America is, you know, in that light novel subcategory, it is kind of like very, very limited in what you are allowed to write about right now. I'm trying to think, uh, Umi, you're, Probably the your favorite isekai was probably ReZero, right? Uh, I think that the really only one that has struck me watching, mm-hmm. or really, that I, I actually I didn't know that's what it was called mm-hmm. until you guys said ReZero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay, so those are the those are the yeah. animes where you come back or you mm-hmm. enter a world, a fantasy, yeah, basically yeah. transport into another world, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I did like ReZero. And that's that was the was that the first of the big casualties or was Snafu first as far uh, as I, the coronavirus? I think, that, I think that ReZero was first because they delayed it like really ahead of schedule. It was a couple of like it, we, we were sitting here in like February and they were just kind of like, no, we're going to push this back to the summer. I didn't even like I've never finished it. I keep meaning to. And I didn't realize that it was like continuing. I thought it was like done. Oh, no. Yeah, they they have. um, So at the time when the anime was just airing, um, the anime actually got a little bit ahead of where the light novels were at in print form. Um, But by a little bit ahead, I mean, like by a chapter or two, like it was almost the exact same. But it's actually, it was originally a web novel though. So there was like tons of content that just had to get edited down and published formally. So they, it wasn't like they were like, you know, going in the, like in the dark there. But hmm. um, at that point, I believe there were nine volumes. And as of right now, there are 22 volumes in print. What so the there's, fuck? yeah, there's more that there's more than twice as many now. Um, so they've got uh-huh. plenty of content for a second season. They probably will not catch up to the light novels in the second season. Too much rum and ram. Yeah. I've so, heard that it gets like the arcs get longer and longer with each passing arc, but I, I haven't read the books. I just watched the anime, so I don't know. I wonder if that's a good thing, knowing anime formats. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like ReZero could probably pull it off a little bit better than something like Dragon Ball Z, where the fight, not, not to not to like shit on Dragon Ball Z for the fans, right. but like when fights go on for like 30 episodes of anime, I'm out, like personally. Um, and I, I think that, you know, when ReZero has a really long arc, it's not like one fight. It's like there's a lot of like complicated, you know, like movement, like rotating gears all over the place. And if that's good or not, I don't know. It probably would depend on how well the arc's written. But I think it's a little bit more complex than just like an extended fight would be. Everything about ReZero reminds me of that, like the ultimate experience I've had with it is just come down to that, that ProZD video where the one guy's like, yeah, I'm watching this show. I really like this character. And then he, you know, it's like he, all the other characters are him. Like the, the friend in the room is like, mm, just wait till you find out what happens to that character. And I'm like, cool. Oh yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, goodness gracious. Uh, so didn't mean to go too much into there with the Isakai. Um, I know we've been meaning to do this conversation for a while. So you are yeah. the most well-traveled in Japan out of anybody in Anate, I think, arguably. Yeah, I think that's probably uh, a recent, a fair assumption. Uh, if 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 there's somebody who's not, they're a lurker, and uh, like if someone has been in Japan longer than you, they're a lurker. Yeah. But um, so I guess starting off, I mean, you know, we were just gonna kind of, you know, shoot the shit here about uh, with you being in Japan and your experiences. Let's go ahead and start because you said that you know you got interested in high school. Uh, when yeah. did it, when did it start becoming a, a reality that you'd be spending time in Japan? So I had like um, I think it was probably so the summer before my senior year of high school. Okay, uh, and that, so I had started writing for Anate um, a few months pre. Like I, I guess I well I, I started writing for Anate that summer, um, but I'd started reading it and you know like commenting and stuff a little bit before that. Um, and I think that when I, I, I was kind of curious because it's, you know, it's, I think this happens to everyone, right? Like you're like a teenager and you watch all of this media in a foreign language and you kind of go like, oh, I, I wish I knew what they were saying. Um, and I mean, I'd had like maybe like a passing interest in it previously. Um, my, my, uh, my aunt actually had lived in Japan. She did the JET program. She was an ALT, an, uh, an assistant language teacher. She was basically like an English teacher in japan back in the ni- early 90s um and she had like a japan room in her house that i would visit in the summers because she lived like right she lived in the neighborhood next to mine when i was in elementary school um hmm. and so like i had an interest in japan i actually and i'm probably an asian general because when i was when I was like five years old, I used to tell my mom that I wanted to move to china to live with the pandas you know it was like one of those like that was like my little kid thing sure um and so I, I'd always had kind of like a passing interest in, in that respect. Um, but the moment that I really decided that I wanted to study Japanese was probably that summer before my senior year, because when I, I started watching a lot more anime and I was kind of curious about it. And so I actually like, I looked up some Japanese like grammar stuff online out of curiosity. And I remember like, at one point, there was a list of all the particles in the Japanese language, theoretically. I, I, I don't know the accuracy of that list. I, you know, I, I, I haven't looked at that list in years. Um, but at the time, I looked at that list, and they had all these different usages for all these different grammatical particles in Japanese. And I remember going, like, realistically, I will never be fluent in this language if I do not take a class. Right. That was kind of like the thought that I had in that moment. And for some, some people can do it, but I just really was sort of like, if I do not have the structure of a class, I will probably never get to where I want to with this. Mm-hmm. And so at that moment, and I was planning on doing engineering at the time when I went to college. Um, but at that moment, I decided that I would take Japanese as like a side thing. Like maybe I'd minor in it or something. Um, and so my freshman year of college, um, I took, uh, you know, first year language class and I really enjoyed it. And it also set up sort of a, um, a contrast for me between how much I was enjoying the Japanese class and how much I was not enjoying, you know, like the computer science, the engineering, the mathematics courses. Right. Um, and so, and then I was fortunate 
um, the fresh, the summer of my freshman year, after I'd finished first year, I was, I got um, a fully funded sort of like scholarship to study in um, Japan for a summer. And I did a two month program. So it was eight weeks in um, Hakodate, which is a city on the Southern tip of Hokkaido. And um, I was there for two months. And after I came back from that, I had a really great time. I did all of second year Japanese language um, studies when I was there. Um, and when I came back, I was still in computer science, but I, I was, you know, disliked the classes even more. And I was just like, and I had so much fun with the study abroad. And I was like, you know what? Um, there's, you know, computer science, there's a lot of security in knowing, you know, there's so much work for computer scientists, but I was like, if I work hard at this, I can make a career out of this. And so that was when I kind of decided. And so that's first, my fresh, that's first semester of my sophomore year, about halfway through, I switched and declared myself as a Japanese major. And then I ultimately added a history degree to that, um, hmm. the next semester. I see. Um, quick question. What, mm -hmm. um, what did you do to help you study Japanese and what was the hardest part for you? Yeah. Um, so I think that one of, one of the big thing, one of the big misunderstandings that I had, um, I think when I went into this and I, I, I was trying, I try to like prep myself for all sorts of potential like outcomes with these sort of things. I like to like try to like be forward thinking about it, but I did have the assumption that if I took four years of collegiate Japanese, that I would be fluent. Um, and I think that the first issue is that like what fluency means is different for different people. Um, but the other thing too, though, is that Japanese just takes a lot more time than other languages and just going to the classes is not necessarily going to get you, especially speaking wise, it's not necessarily going to get you where you want to be if you want to be like really, really advanced. Um, and so for me, the biggest, um, what I, I was fortunate, um, because I supplement, I was able to supplement it with, um, obviously I had study abroad opportunities, but I did, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the program Wani Kani before. I have not. Nope. It's a it's a kanji learning program, um, and it costs it costs money. But I happened to my friend recommended it to me, and I happened to start it right before they have like a every year around like Christmas time they do like you can get like a lifetime membership. I think it's like it's and it's it's like a couple hundred bucks, but it was they have like a big sale on it, so it's it's heavily discounted at that time during the year, and so I bought that. Um, and cause I was, I was kind of like, um, Wani Kani will get you to about 2000 kanji by the end of it. And it takes, it takes people a different amount of time to get through it. But, um, for me, it took about a year and a half. Some people can do it in like a year, which is crazy. Um, Jeez. and other people can do it. Other people take, I think a year and a half, I was a little bit over a year and a half. So like a year and a half to two years is like, is like a pretty decent speed. To, I think anything three years or under is like normal. If you're over three years, then you probably took a break somewhere along the line, um, which plenty of people do. But basically, if I mean, if you get through it, um, what it does is um, it's like a spaced repetition system. So it's kind of like Anki in terms of if you, you get a card and if you get it right, then it comes up. It takes longer for it to come back to the top of the deck. But if you get it wrong, then it comes up much quicker. 
And so it's kind of spaced. That's where the spaced repetition, because the idea is that the the stronger you get with a particular card, the less often it comes up, but it still comes up. So you don't forget it, but it just continually like improves your memory of that card. Um, And so, and that was really effective for me. And um, Anki is great too, because you can make your own decks, but the difference is that I'm just, I have a hard time like providing structure for myself, like creating a, a, a thorough curriculum that would get me fluent by myself on Anki. And Wani Kani, you know, has it for you. Like uh, it's lo- there are 60 levels. And once you've learned, um, you learn radicals in each level. And once you've learned the radicals, they give you kanji. And once you've learned the kanji, they give you vocab using the kanji. And um, that way they'll have you memorize like the meaning and one reading of the kanji when you learn the kanji, but then you'll see other readings for the kanji in various vocab words. And so that was good because it gave me, I know, you know, like multiple readings and the meaning for these characters. And then I also see them in context in a lot of different vocab words. And I, so you start to develop kind of like a feel for when kanji are likely to have certain readings, just because you've seen enough vocab words that you're kind of like, oh, usually when it has characters like this nearby, it's read like this. And so you start to develop that pattern recognition as you get further in and you get over 2000 kanji by the end of Wani Kani. And I think it gives you about 6,000 vocabulary words as well. Um, And so it's not, obviously if you just studied Wani Kani, it doesn't have grammar, so it's not enough, but it is a fantastic supplementary resource if you're studying grammar somewhere else. Um, And so I was taking language classes and also doing Wani Kani. um, And so I had a real, I was able to really develop my reading, my kanji background using that. And then I was able to get my speaking background from when I studied abroad. Huh. So when did it all kind of start coming together for you? Like, I know you, it, obviously you've talked to me about this, but for people who might not know, I mean, you, you know, really put yourself out there. You try to go for the position you have right now. I won't dox you. I won't say what it is, but like <laughs> what made you end up in Japan like, when did you start really having the confidence that you were going to be able to do that as your career, like w- what you're doing now? Yeah. So I had, um, so first off in terms of like my, my language, I think language progress and how, how confident I was in my language ability ties to this pretty strongly. Um, and I would say by the end of my freshman year, so after I did that first two-month program in Hakodate, I felt like I had conversational Japanese. Okay. Um, and after my the summer of my sophomore year, so I went back, I did third year. My sophomore year of college, I did the third year classes at my university. And then that summer, I was in Kyoto for two months. Um, and when I was in Kyoto, by the end of that program, I felt like not like even not just conversationals at the end of that first summer, but at the end of the second summer, I felt like my Japanese was high enough that I could manage my way through just about any situation with varying degrees of success, obviously, but just about anything I could probably piece things together. Because by that point I was about, I was at an N2 level. Um, I hadn't taken the N2 yet. I ended up taking it later that, that fall. Um, but I was at an N2 level, um, you know, like in practicality. And uh, I definitely felt like 
I could work with that. So at that point, once you're at an N2-ish level, so um, I, I, I won't say, you know, like go into details about like the specifics of my job, obviously, but right. I do, I am on the JET program. I'm working as a, but I'm not an ALT. I'm working as a CIR. And so CIRs are coordinators for international relations. Um, and so I work in like um, interpretation, translation, event, international event planning, that sort of thing sure. um, in, my, in my municipality, if you will. Um, and I, uh, and for a CIR position, they don't require the JLPT, like they don't require you to actually take that exact test because they test you at the interview. Um, but they oh, say wow. that you should have, you should have roughly, um, an, an N2 level. So once again, the JLPT five is N5 is the lowest N one is the highest. And they want for CIRs, they want you to have at minimum roughly an N2 level. Um, even if you haven't taken the test, that's essentially what level they will expect when they test you at the interview. Um, and so after doing that sophomore year program um, in the summer, and I was essentially at N2 level, and then later, you know, my junior year, that fall semester, I did take the N2 and passed it. Um, and so then I was like, I am definitely at the level where I could apply for this job and be qualified for it. Um and so that was when I was, and I had been hoping to do the JET program, but that was when I was definitely like, I think I'm most likely going to apply for the CIR position. Um, the other thing that helped me is actually um, a one of the, um, uh, uh, an uh, Japanese to English translator, actually, um, the, uh, the guy, um, Jake, Jake Jung, he's the guy who translates for, or Jake Young, I forget how you pronounce his last name. He, he's the guy who works um, on like Made in Abyss and some other series for Sentai. He actually, like I, I chatted with him at one point and he told me he had originally worked as a CIR actually. And he wow. said, oh yeah, you should, you should apply for that. That'd be a good idea. And I was like, and that was, I was thinking about it already. But once he said that, I was like, all right, yeah, I'm definitely gonna, I think this is going to be the route that I go. Um, and so I applied and, um, I passed and I got the job. So, uh, out of curiosity, you know, you've been there just over a year now, right? Uh, about, I think like eight months actually. Okay. All right. So since, just... I, since I like started this job, right. Right. Um, if we count other times that I've studied in Japan, then yeah, I've been here for definitely over a year. What would you say was the hardest thing to adjust to going from America to Japan? I feel like, um, so one of the, I, and I, 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 I'm, I think that I'm not, I don't want to say unique, but a little bit unusual in the respects that I have probably a much, much stronger Japanese cultural and linguistic background than the average foreigner who moves here does. Okay. Um, and so because of that, there are, there are fewer surprises for me than there are for some other people. I think um, that's not to say that things don't happen. Right. Um, but it's easier for me to kind of like negotiate and understand where people are coming from than it is for other people. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people have difficulty with. Uh, is that Japanese people don't say no in the same way that um, Americans tend to say no. So, and, and this is actually this is actually a stereotype that is based off a grain of truth, right? Some people say Japanese people don't say no. Yes means no here. That's kind of like what the disgruntled foreigner will tell you. Um, and that's not actually true. People say no here, and it's very obvious that they're saying no, but only if you understand the cultural context under which they're responding to your question. 
people will not usually say the exact word no, but they will phrase their response in a way that if you understand culturally what is happening, it is very obvious that they are not interested in accepting your offer on something. Like they're Um, politely declining you. Right. And so like to think about it too is actually Japanese people have a misunderstanding oftentimes about American people in this regard. Um, They think that American people will just say no. And we actually don't do that. Um, American people. So we will, we, what, so for example, here's what usually happens if let's say I'm, I'm a college student and I've just been invited to a party and I cannot go, or I do not want to go to this party. So some, I've had this, and this is how I learned, this is anecdotal evidence, but a lot of Japanese friends that I've had who studied abroad to my university in the United States, sometimes they would actually just say no. Um, they just be like, oh no, and like end it there because they thought like culturally that's what they're supposed to do because they're in America. But that's actually, that would be rude. Like if I invite you to a party, Dylan, you're like, no, yeah. I'm not gonna invite you to a party again because you know, it's <laughs> like this, this guy is an asshole, right? So how you would probably say is first off, you preface your, your response with expressing how much you would like to attend. You say, oh yeah, that sounds great. But, and then you say, I can't go, which is the, how we say no. And then you offer a reason. So it's actually a, a proper decline is actually a three-step process in English usually. Um, because you would say, oh, sorry, I'd really like to go to the party, but I can't because I have to do homework tonight. So I'm saying I want to go, and then I'm also saying why I can't go. So if I just say no, that would be really rude. And so there's a cultural like response in English as well, which people don't think about that often, right? Um, but in Japanese, it's similar, right? Like there is a way, a common way in which to decline requests that differs from English. So if you're coming from an American cultural background, it might be confusing. Um, but so, for example, oftentimes people will say. Um, they'll be like, oh, I'll be like, oh, can you want to hang? They'll you know, kind of casually be like, oh yeah, we should hang out sometime. They're like, oh yeah, you want to, I'm, I'm free tomorrow. You want to get lunch tomorrow? And they're like, ah, tomorrow's busy. And they're like, oh, okay. What about like next week? They're like, ah, next week's busy. And then you're like, okay, this person does not want to actually hang out. Um, going to move on from here. Um, and another way they might, and so that's one way that people might phrase it. They might also say something like, um, you know, they'd be like, oh, you know, like, that's a little bit, or like, ah, that's kind of difficult. One of the most common things that I'll see is they will say, oh, that is difficult to do, isn't it? And then that is their, that is the most common, especially in business settings, that is a very common way to say, not going to happen, buddy. Um, So for example, let's say that you're setting up like a new cellular plan. And then you say, oh, I want to get a plan, but I want to have, I want to pay $30 $30 for it. And their normal plan is $50. And they'd be like, Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Customer. But you know, like that is very difficult for us to do. Right. And that means we cannot do it. Do not ask again. Um, but for someone who's coming from an American cultural background, they might think, Oh, if I press the issue, I might be able to get somewhere with this, which is not true. So there's kind of like that. I think that that's a really big difficulty for a lot of people. And even though I have a decent background, there have definitely been times, especially early on, where I may have missed cues like that. Um, so that's one challenge. And then as a, as a joke, when people ask um, a challenge that I often say is that um, in the U.S., usually people, if you're, you're supposed to walk on the right side of the sidewalk, um, but in Japan, even though it's, it's left side traffic for cars, 
but sometimes people will walk on the left side for sidewalks or they'll walk on the right side. And so people walk in both directions and I can never tell which one I should go in. And -hmm. so that always drives me nuts because, you know, there's kind of like this reputation of Japan being orderly and people follow very specific rules. And then on the sidewalks, people are running all over the place. Whereas in the U S it's actually more orderly. So that that's usually like my, uh, my casual joke answer. Um, but you know, it's, it's little things like that. And then big cultural things like, you know, declining things, I think are, um, various things that people get mixed up on. And I myself have gotten confused on before too. Sure. That's interesting. Like the story with, about the, the, I mean, that example you say about like a a phone company, that's, that's a perfect, uh, way to explain or like the party. Oh yeah. It happens all the time. I, I thought of that specific example because I've been helping, um, some foreign residents set up their, um, their internet provider recently and it's always it's such a process with these companies um to get contracts because there's just like a lot of paperwork and you know like bureaucratic red tape with stuff so um and i just had to do that this past week so that was on the top of my you know top of my mind um how because with the japan being very orderly were there things about just your basic routine that were a huge change for you going over there I feel like the biggest challenge in terms of my routine that I had um, was when I was living with host families. So I studied abroad, right? I did a a summer in Hokkaido, a summer in Kyoto. And then the second semester, my spring semester of my junior year, I did like a four months, like a semester program in Nagoya. And so it's for a total of eight months. Um, And each of those programs, I lived with a host family. Um, And so one of the challenges with that, it becomes more apparent, right? Because if you're living by yourself, then it's kind of easier to keep your American routine. Mm-hmm. But if you're living with a Japanese family, you have to follow their rules. Um, and so one thing that was tricky for me is I think not all Americans, but a lot of Americans, we tend to take our showers in the morning. Um, yeah. And in Japan, they do not do that. It, almost everyone takes baths at night. Um, and they do it as a family. What people normally do is you shower. So they, they fill the tub with hot water. And then there's their bathrooms, right? They've got, a, they've got a separate area for the shower and tub space. It's like a separate room usually. Um, and then they've got a bathtub on the side of that room and then a shower area in the main part of that room. And then you're supposed to shower off, soap down, get completely clean, and then you get in the bath. Um, and for families, everyone, you don't drain the bath water in between people. Everyone uses the same water. Um, it's kind of like a public bath in that regard um, because the idea is that you're showering and you're clean before you get in. Um, and That's you wild. also have to do it in order. Usually a lot of families, the, and, and my family is, I think that this, it's a stereotype that it's got to be a specific order, but um, it is true that if you are just barging into this family and you're like, I'm going first, that's going to be rude. Um, and the, the, the standard order is varies from family to family, but um Oftentimes you might have in a really conservative family, the dad might go first and then the mom and then the kids. Um, in my, in my host family in Nagoya, it was usually the, the opposite. The kids would usually go first. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't, and it was, I mean, I, I, I do not have the experience of living with any family that I would regard as particularly conservative. I think that the act of taking on host students in and of itself tends to indicate a more international perspective in the first place. 
So, I mean, my anecdotal evidence is probably slanted in that regard. Sure. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, there, there is kind of a lot more flexibility within the system than one might think just by saying, oh, yeah, everyone has to go in baths in order. Um, and, you know, people have they have different orders sometimes depending on like the events of the day. Maybe someone's out of the house right now, you know, and so they're not going to go first. Um, but so, you know, taking, if you want to take a shower in the morning, that's something that you would specifically need to ask your host family about, right? Because no one else is doing that and that is unusual for them. So they would need to be aware that you want to do that. And some families might say no, right? Like that might be, they'd be like, you know, people brushing their teeth, using the bathroom for other purposes in the morning, and you need to take your shower at night like the rest of us. Um, so it, re it really depends, but I think that, you know, like the, the biggest challenge for like routines, um, and how you have to change them is really apparent in those sort of situations where there are, there are things that you just wouldn't even think about. Um, like morning showers are not really that much of a thing here most of the time. Um, and so you might have to change your routine for that. Obviously like the kind of food that's usually offered at meals tends to be different from what I might have for say breakfast in the United States. In my case, I actually don't usually eat um, breakfast. I might have something small because I, I get like really bad stomach aches if I eat a lot of food in the in the morning when I wake up. And so I actually cut breakfast out back when I was in high school because I just have such bad stomach aches in like first period. Um, and hmm. so I usually don't eat breakfast very much. And my host families tend to make very large breakfasts. And so for both of my my host my two my first two host families, I informed them at the very beginning. I do not eat breakfast. And they said, okay, great. And then they proceeded to make breakfast for me every single morning. Um, <laughs> and that was just, and I, every single time I'd be like, I, so my host father in Hakodate, I told him over and over again. And every time he'd be like, why don't you eat breakfast? You gotta eat breakfast. It's good for you. And you know, like, so we'd have our like back and forth on that. Um, and with my host mother in Kyoto, um, I'd say, I, I don't eat breakfast, you know, like we, we've talked about this before. And then she'd be like, oh yeah, no, that's fine. Just take this to go for lunch then instead. And so, you know, like she'd do that. And then in Nagoya, my host mother in Nagoya was like, she's, she's such a nice person. And she really is, she's one of those people who's really good at like reading the room, even relative to like the, you know, like the, like the standard, you know, like expectation for like a Japanese person in general. She's just really good at that sort of thing. And so she was always I, like I on the first I explained oh yeah I don't eat breakfast okay problem solved I was she never made me breakfast after that she's like all right I get it that's fine and we we never had a problem um, so that was great but the other two host families you know there's a certain they would make food and I would you know have to have to eat it even though I did not want to um, and um, so there were there was stuff like that and on regard with in regards to food to um, my host family, and particularly in Hakodate, made a lot of food every meal. Like I could not even get close to finishing this stuff most of the time. Um, and it's it's very important in Japan. I think I mean it's it's rude in the U.S. too. If you have like two bites and you're like you know fuck this, I'm not eating this. That's obviously not gonna be a good look. You're gonna look like a spoiled little kid. Um, but in Japan, it's even. I think that it's even more, it's probably maybe on like a relative scale on average, it's probably perceived as even more rude in Japan to not eat all of your food than it is in the U S. Um, so it's harder to get away with that sort of thing. Like 
my um when I was in Hakodate, my my mother and my sister actually visited from the US at one point and we went out to like um we went out to an izakaya. So that's like a Japanese style sort of like um I don't want to call it like a pub because it's different from that. You have like individual rooms for each, you know, like group of guests and then you like order from a menu. Um but we uh we went to one of these izakaya and my host family ordered just, you know, like a, a ton of food because they always do this. And I was ready for it. And there was, they had another um, host student. And so the two of us were eating it. And then my, my mom and my sister, they liked the food actually, but they didn't eat that much because they couldn't eat that much. And my, my, um, my friend who was the, the other host student who we became friends while we were on the program, he was helping them. He was actually like eating extra food to like cover for them. Like they'd put stuff on his plate and uh, on their plate and he'd be like, here, don't worry, I'll handle this. Um, so he was really, he was helping them out, but my host father still noticed. And then he like, my host father like took me aside and he was like, Hey Michael, are your mom and sister feeling okay? Like they're not eating very much. Are they sick? Um, and like, it, it didn't even cross his mind that maybe they just like, weren't hungry. Right. He was like, because it was just assumed, like, if you can eat, you will eat because that is the polite thing to do in the situation. So he oh, was wow. just like, and I mean, he, it wasn't that big of a deal. If I was, you know, if I had been like, they hate all the food, right. He wouldn't have like gotten pissed or anything like that. He would have just been like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Cause he was like, yeah, he was a nice chill dude, but it didn't even cross his mind. Right. He thought his first thought when he saw someone not eating very much is that maybe they don't feel well because what that would be the most normal reason for someone not to eat food in this situation from his perspective so stuff like that amazing how many yeah it's it's amazing how many little things you don't necessarily think of like just on a day-to-day basis um like when i was deployed in korea like it's absolutely like middle finger slap someone in the face to hand something to somebody with your left hand. <laughs> yeah. And and then it's like, you know, you're going to work in the morning and you have to pick up some food for someone. And mm-hmm. then you go to like hand your credit card over and you get your hands full. And like, it only happened to me once. Cause like they put out their right hand and they put their left over like kind of their uh, forearm. Uh-huh. And I just one morning I did it in a, I just entire process just to reverse and the lady's face was like, I just slapped her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like that was pushing six years now. And that's still like burned into my, my memory. Just that face she gave me. Right, yeah. I'm sure she was like actually very upset by that, you know? Because right. it's something. Like I'm just some American kid showing up and just. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you gotta be careful. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, were, were so, you going to ask? Actually, I didn't have anything lined up right now. Cool. Oh, okay. So I'm I thought you were about sorry. to say something. No, I thought you were about to say something earlier. So I was like, say, oh, my I think only, My other country living experiences aren't as relatable to you two. So it's besides the country was owned by Japan for a while, but. Well, tell us a little bit. About no, it. no, we're going to stick to him. Oh, <laughs> come on. Only the old people know Japanese on that island. Uh, was it Taiwan? No, it was uh, Micronesia. Mm. When they were taken over during World War II. So, I know you like to travel a lot, Proton. Yeah. Um, what are some of the best spots you've been to, <laughs> like in all of your time there in Japan? 
Like the, the like when you when your end of your days, when you think of like the best trips you've got on, be it because of friends, uh, uh, you know, sightseeing. Yeah. Um. So I mean, so really quickly, one one of my dreams, one of my goals, one of these days, is that um, I want to visit every prefecture in Japan. Oh. Um. As of right now, I'm about halfway there. Uh, I think I visited. I forget the exact number, but it's over twenty. Um, so I've been I've been around to quite a few areas in Japan. Um, I've been to all I've been to all four major islands and also um, Okinawa. Um, most memorable vacations. One that really sticks out to me. Um, so in twenty seventeen. After I finished my Kyoto program, I went, um, I visited my host family in Hakodate again. Um, and I actually met up with my, the old, the other host student who had studied with me. Um, and me and my, um, host, other host student friend, he happened to be traveling Japan at that time. We went to Hakodate for a bit and then we went together to Tokyo. And in Tokyo, we met up with another study abroad student who had studied abroad a year after us on the same program in Hokkaido but he had studied with the same host family. And so we had met him when we visited Hakodate. And then another friend who was my, the other host student who I had stayed with my year, his undergraduate, like freshman year dorm roommate also happened to be in Japan this time. So like the four of us met up in Tokyo and it wasn't the first, it wasn't the second. I don't even, it was maybe like the third or fourth time I'd been to Tokyo. Um, But it was, I don't know, we were like traveling together for like a week and we had a really good time and we ended up, you know, like we made like a Facebook messenger group that's still active to this day. Like we do regular, you know, like calls and everything. So from this one trip, I, I was already good friends with one of the guys, but I became good friends with the other two from this one trip and we've stayed in contact. So I think that that was a really memorable trip. Um, oh, nice. Another one that I really enjoyed. Um, I really enjoyed my trip this past fall. I went to Sendai and Mm. um, I'd never been to uh, Sendai before. So Sendai is located, um, it's a couple of hours by bullet train north of Tokyo. Um, It's in the Tohoku region. So it's in like the, it's in the Northern region of the main Island. So right. Japan's those four big islands. And um, if you've got that Northern Island is Hokkaido. But then the main island where Tokyo, Kyoto, all those places are on is called Honshu. And the northern section region of that island is called Tohoku, which literally just means like the northeast. Um, and Sendai is sort of like the biggest city in Tohoku. And I had never been to Tohoku before or obviously not Sendai. And so I would wanted to go. And I went to Sendai for like a week. I took some time off work. Um, and I had a really good time there. I stayed at a guest house that was really close to like the central like station, um, train station. And I met like a bunch of people there, like a lot of the Japanese staff and um, also like some other foreigners who were traveling. And we had, I just had a really fun time. Um, I got all around like some of the areas in like Southern Tohoku. So I went to uh, Matsushima, um, which is got a famous Buddhist temple, but it's also, it's famous for being one of the three greatest views in Japan, um, which is not based on any sort of like objective measurement. It's based off the opinion of a famous poet from the 1600s. Um, oh, wow. but he loved it there and he was very good at poetry. 
Um, and it was, a, it is a really beautiful place because there's a lot of, it's like a coastline, but there's a lot of like really small islands, like all dotting it. So it's kind of like, um, it's very scenic. And so I went there. The other thing is I went to a temple in Yamagata prefecture. That's like just a little bit North of Sendai. It's called, um, Yamadera, um, which is literally like mountain temple. Um, and it's a really massive temple, um, that is like in the mountains of this other prefecture and it was like that was maybe one of the best views i've ever had in japan and it, i took the best photo from my phone that i've ever taken like whenever i show people the photo that i took of yamadera they're always like oh my gosh that's so cool um and it's by far the greatest photo i've ever been able to take myself so it was it was a really great um scenic area and just getting to like travel around tohoku it was really fun and i was technically traveling by myself but i met a lot of people while i was traveling so that kind of like fellow traveler experience was really fun that sounds super wholesome it was it was um yes that was really really great i also had fun um like my most recent fun trip and my (laughs) last trip for who knows until you know all this craziness dies down um i went to um fukuoka in um, February. And so I actually, um, my, um, my, my girlfriend lives in Nagasaki. And so we were kind of like meeting Fukuoka. So Nagasaki is on the Southern Island Kyushu and Fukuoka is the largest city on Kyushu. So it's a little bit away from Nagasaki, but it's easy for her to go by train to Fukuoka. And then I can get a lot of direct flights from, um, you know, like where, from the airport near where I live, um, to Fukuoka. And so we, um, you know, had like a trip and I'd never been to Kyushu at that point either. So that was really fun. All right. All right. Pros and I see you making it work through air. All right. Yeah. <laughs> man, that's, oh man, that's a lot to take in. So that trip uh, yeah, sounded I, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of traveling. Um, and it's really, it's really fun to travel around Japan. Um, especially like the higher your language ability is too, makes it really like a blast um, because, um, you know, I can kind of like go to the middle of nowhere and just like chat with people. I'm sure you don't just come off as a dumb foreigner then too, since you're proficient. No. Yeah. I, I, I hope not. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, people see me and they're like, all right, it's, you know, whitey yeah. in the house here. Yeah. They, um, they get their assumption right away. Yeah. But uh, usually what I do um so different people have different sort of ways of dealing with that. Um, my way is that usually I'll speak in whatever language I'm spoken to. So if someone talks to me in English, I'll speak back to them in English. But most of the time, people's English is not that advanced. And so if they try to have like an actual conversation with me, we eventually hit a bit of a wall. And then I will switch into Japanese, and that tends to freak people out. (laughs) Have you ever had people talk about you in Japanese, assuming you didn't know what they were saying? Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. Um, It happened happened a lot when I was studying abroad in Hakodate, um, in particular, because Hakodate does not have very many um, foreigners. Nowadays, actually, Hakodate has a ton of foreigners, but they're mostly Chinese tourists. and like to the extent that my host father straight up calls Hakodate like a tourism area, um, which as of 
a few years ago, he he referred to it as the countryside. So it has, you know, the, the locals' opinion of their own town has essentially evolved over the past few years because there's so many Chinese tourists there now. But even to this day, there's not very many um, like European, you know, um, tourists or really anyone that's not from China usually. So because of that, I still stand out. Um, and when I was studying abroad in Hakodate, I had frequently had people talk about me behind my back. Um, mm. I don't know why Hakodate in particular. I think part of it is like when I was studying abroad, for example, in Kyoto, there's a ton of foreigners everywhere in Kyoto because every, everyone and their mother who travels to Japan goes to Tokyo and Kyoto. So you know, like every, everyone goes to Tokyo and then some people who are like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to take a step away from the mold. I'm going to go to real Japan in Kyoto. Um, everyone thinks that. And so everyone's in Kyoto as well. Oh, damn, um, I feel called out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 here's the thing. Like the, there's nothing wrong with it. Like Kyoto and Tokyo are awesome. Um, and I, I mean like the, all the old temples in Kyoto are super cool. And Tokyo is one of the coolest cities in the world. And I, think there's absolutely nothing wrong with going to those places. And I personally go to those places all the time. But if you think you're being like culturally informed by going to Kyoto instead of Tokyo, um, you know, like you're, you're getting ahead of yourself a little bit, maybe. <laughs> that's where I, that's exactly where I was going to have my trip before I got restricted not to go to Japan, but that's a dark reason. I won't say why, <laughs> but it's I mean, like, me, but yeah. <laughs> But to, and I think that that would have been an amazing trip, and you would have loved it because Kyoto is a really cool place. And you know, if people come to Japan, I do tend to recommend that they go to Tokyo and Kyoto because those are easy sells. Everyone has fun there, um, and you get to experience. Tokyo has the very modern aesthetic, and Kyoto tends to really emphasize the, you know, the pre-modern aesthetic. And so you kind of get both of those different tourism experiences and for people who don't who have never been to japan that's all they need right that's great for them for people who you know like want to experience you know like different things or then there's some people who want to experience quote-unquote real japan and i I don't really know what that means and you know (laughs) because that's but uh it's to be fair right everyone you know has different things that they want They, they they define authenticity in different ways in their own minds and so some people think that because Kyoto is a major tourist trap, which it is to a certain extent, that it's not authentic Japan. Um, I mean, you know, 2 million Japanese people live in Kyoto, but um, I can get, I can understand where that perspective comes from. And so they want to go somewhere else. Um, And so for people who want to go to other large cities, but don't want to have the same level of like international tourism, that's when I start to recommend places like um, Sendai um, and like Nagoya. But Proton... Where in Japan can I go to get my Japanese girlfriend that will treat me better than all of the American girls do? <laughs> oh God, um, you're 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 you are out of you are out of luck, my friend. I'm still laughing like in my head right now, and he's like, "Real Japan," and I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, how would you do real America? Right, right, exactly. Like, you know, it's like if someone in New York, like New York City, like. Well, that's the thing is like, it's, and I see Japanese people do this sometimes too. Like people who like are into American stuff, they'll be like, oh, New York city is not like real America. Like you want that real American experience. You got to go to Iowa, baby. I think of Ohio, just cornfields and farmers and 
Oh, man. Right. No, sometimes and, I'll, 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 like, people will ask me, oh, where are you from? And I'll be like, oh, Kansas. And then they'll be like, I don't know where that is. And I'm like, of course you don't. Um, <laughs> but every once, okay, every once in a while, they'll be like, one time, okay, there's this old dude in my office. And one time I was like, um, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm from Kansas. And then he's like, oh, Kansas City? I'm like, yeah. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I, I, went, I went there 30 years ago. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, I was working on like the Sprint campus. And I'm like, that is five minutes from my parents' house. That is weird. Um, and then there was this one other guy like in the tourism association of my town. Like they got this new like president of the association and the guys lived like all over the world. And so I said, oh yeah, I'm from Kansas City. And the first thing he asked me is which one? And I was like, oh my God, this guy knows what he's talking about. Like I've sure. never been asked that in Japan. <laughs> Because, um, and for those, I don't know if anyone's listening and they're from the UK or they're from the US and they just don't know, Kansas City is half in Missouri and half in Kansas City. Right. Half, sorry, half in Kansas. And so there's technically like two municipalities. Mm -hmm. um, and so that gets confusing sometimes. Except for during sports season because they don't like the same group. Oh, yeah. Yeah. MUKU. I say, I think I'm right about that. Missouri usually roots for the Cardinals and then. The other half, I don't. I only know Missouri stuff because that's where my sister lives. Yeah, I think. I think I in terms I of base, shit, I, I didn't think even baseball, think of that. I think that baseball, um, Kansas City people actually tend to root for the Royals, um, yeah, even if they're say. on the Missouri side, because I actually think the Royal Stadium's on the Missouri side anyway. So Missouri just has two teams. Um, and but since you know it's like the Kansas City Royals, um, everyone who's in Kansas City is just like you know they're gonna be like I mean they're if they're Cardinals fans they probably moved here from St Louis. Um, now that they won, like everybody says they're a Chiefs fan. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I don't. But I don't think that you know I think that there's as opposed to like Missouri versus Kansas affiliations. I think with sports it's more just about like you know if there's if there's a team who is in Kansas City regardless of which side of Kansas City they're on, people tend if you're in Kansas City then overwhelmingly people are going to support that team regardless of if they're on the Missouri or Kansas side. Okay. But now we're getting into Kansas talk and Kansas is um, what I was getting at with Kansas is that I, people, you know, they don't know about Kansas and sometimes they'll be like, Oh, Kansas, you know, where's that? And I'll talk to them about it. And then I'll be like, you know, I can't recommend that you come here because there's not that much, you know, like going on in terms of tourist stuff. But if you are looking for kind of like a stereotypical, or an archetype, I shouldn't say stereotype, maybe like an archetypal, you know, like example of like the American heartland or whatever. Like Kansas is kind of like the stereotype, right? Can't you just show um, them Wizard of Oz? Yeah. Well, they, they actually usually know Wizard of Oz. Um, that's how, that's what I do is I'll ask them, um, oh yeah, you know, like Ozuno Mahotsukai? And then they're like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> that just sounds more badass. Yeah. It's literally, yeah, it's literally just, that's just word, you know, it's a, an exact translation. Right. Of Oz. That's what they call it here. So, but people, most people have seen it. It was like an internationally famous movie. Don't talk about the anime if you haven't read the manga. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say with going back to stereotypical America with people want to see, I, I used, I worked with exchange students on the campus I was at. I was part of the, um, supposed to be that American immersion partner the people that take them out go do things oh yeah yeah um they were they said they were surprised to see how skinny american children are <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? yeah 
we have we have that um we have that reputation you know oh man i know you said you don't want to deviate from kansas missing like having that flight canceled was like oh, one, yeah. <laughs> one of the top five biggest heartbreaks in the last like two years for me oh my god that was i was i remember like you always have the worst luck with airlines and well, i was like of course this happens to do remember like what a month ago trying to get home trying to get home from mississippi and yeah, then, yeah and then the, the plane had more problems it's like uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I'm Joseph Joestar. The, the plane goes down every time he's on it. Yeah, no, that's, that's what it seems to be like. I mean, I've had, ba- I've had bad delays before, but I haven't experienced half of what you have. <laughs> I'm a jinx. I'm an absolute and, jinx right. now. And, and, and I fly, like, a lot. So it's, I'm, you know, I'm well, in a position to get screwed over. Remember my 13-hour flight from Korea to uh, Seattle? Yeah. And there's a screaming child in front of me. Yeah. Like I just, it doesn't matter. Like it just, every time there's a flight, I don't mean to make that tangent, but you said Kansas and it just, think, yeah. It just well, makes... at least, at least with the child one, at least the plane got you, go where down. you wanted to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I swear next time we're, if that ever comes up again, I'm driving. I don't care. <laughs> I haven't had knock on wood. I haven't had a car breakdown yet. 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 Doesn't have wings, that's why. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we covered a lot here today. Is there any last minute thing, like, Umi, did you want to ask? Or if maybe Proton wanted to get anything in here at the last second? Something at the last second. Um, yeah. trying to think. Mm. I don't know. Um, I guess one thing that we didn't really um, touch on that's kind of been, like, stuff that I've been um, focusing on lately is that I mean one one of my big interests is um Japanese history. Okay. So um right right now I am working, you know, in Japan, but ultimately I'm moving forward. I'm planning on um applying to PhD programs um in like um probably in pre-modern Japanese history. So that's kind of been like my late like a lot of my stuff that I do right now has kind of been like centered on that. Um, I've been I'm fortunate because I since I studied I've you know I I already passed the N one um, in my undergraduate career I passed it my senior year and so I have kind of like a, a decently strong language background going into a lot of these programs um, and so um, but yeah I mean that's kind of been my big focus lately um, I've moved. I'm still doing like language studies and like reading and stuff, but I've kind of been moving a lot to like historical studies and moving a bit into like classical language studies as well. That's like, it's so interesting because that, that has another layer added to it. Cause you know, you have your background in Japanese, but then you're also interested in history and you get to look into that with Japanese. Yeah. That's there's just, always, there's always the next level, I guess. I mean, like for inception. me, <laughs> Yeah, but for me, you know, like I, I kind of I I have like that sort of like obsessive personality with things, and it, it manifests itself in ways that are maybe like you know in in some ways different from other people. But um, I tend to always you know be pushing into like the next level of things for myself. Um, and so you know, at one point in time, I was just thinking, oh, maybe I'll study Japanese as a hobby. You know, I. I, I played maybe I played like some 
video games or something. And then I'm like, I start to watch more anime and then I want to like get more involved in anime. And so I start writing for Anate and then that tangents into Japanese studies and I start Japanese studies as like a hobby. And then I end up majoring in it and I make like, you know, I'm, I'm making like a career out of it. And then like Japanese studies starts to tangent into like history studies. And I, I really enjoy pre-modern um, studies and I'm looking, you know, at like pre-modern language, pre-modern history, stuff like that. And then it's like, it is nothing to do with what my original interest was anymore because it's tangented so many times, but it's all sort of been like a weird, like developmental cycle. So we'll see where this goes. I mean, like, even if I get into a graduate program, PhDs tend to take like six to seven years, most for most people. So, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty far in the future. Um, but hopefully I get in, if I get in somewhere, that'll be kind of, you know, my, um, you know, the, the move that my, um, Japanese interests take from here. I think I speak for everybody who's probably listening to this podcast. I mean, I speak for everybody who's listening to this podcast, right? You are going to do well with that because you know your shit. <laughs> I hope so. We'll see. Thing thing, I appreciate the vote of confidence. Yes, sir. Do you have to quit working while going to grad school because you have to change your visa status? So what I would probably, actually, that's a good question because what I would probably do is if I'm doing a PhD program, I'd probably do that in American university, actually. So Um, come back. Yeah. So, and the reason is because American university, so PhD programs, American universities, they're, they're longer, but they're more, um, they're more like prestigious because American universities are so big um, on, on teaching. And so, right, as, as a foreigner, it's very difficult to get professorships in general in Japan, but um, in the United, but getting a PhD in the United States doesn't necessarily really increase or decrease my odds of finding work as a professor in Japan. But what it does do is it greatly increases my odds of being able to find work as a professor of Japanese history in the United States. Um, and so like hireability is much higher from an American university. The other thing too, is that, um, American universities, if you do, if you do a PhD there, you are pretty much, you pretty much have to spend at least a year in Japan doing research. Some people will spend two, three, four years in Japan doing research affiliated with the Japanese university anyways. So it, it inevitably, like there's a good chance that, you know, a good chunk, if not like up to half of my studies I'll be back in Japan anyways. Um, so there's, there's, there's that aspect. The other thing too, in terms of um, monetary stuff is that with PhD programs, um, usually if you've gotten accepted, most PhD programs that to, you know, you become like a TA or something and your tuition is usually covered. So yeah. I won't be getting student debt. I'll be really poor, but I won't be getting student debt. Um, in you usually theory. have a small stipend too. Very small. Yeah. yeah you, get, you get a Right. You get a stipend. Um, and depending on the university and the program and the various scholarships you get access to, your stipend can be at various levels. Um, but I won't be, I won't be wealthy, but hope um, my goal is right. If I get accepted into a program, um, I need to also, you know, crunch the numbers and see if financially I would be able to, you know, live, live there with the stipend offer that they give me. Um, but there, there's, so there's a lot, there's a lot of like factors into that kind of like my process right now is that I'm reading a lot of um, secondary literature. And then, Hmm. um, so I find basically like professors who I'm interested in working with. um, And then I read some of their work and then I contact them, ask about their work, ask about the program, see if they're taking graduate students. That's been like my process right now. Um, 
And so um, a lot of, um, I, I, I've been lucky because my senior year of college, of college I had actually finished, um, I, I'd finished fourth year Japanese uh, summer of my sophomore year. And then I'd done like when I did that semester in Nagoya, uh, my junior year, I had done like, you know, like fifth year, if you will. Um, and then I passed the, I, I took, I ended up taking the N1 my senior year and passing, but there were obviously no like Japanese language classes. So I was fortunate. Um, I was invited to some graduate seminars with a Japanese history professor. And so I did graduate readings course. And I also did some classical Japanese, um, language seminars. Um, so I have a little bit of like a classical background. I can read some classical, um, and I've also done like a lot of secondary reading. So that's been really great because it's, it's helped me like in terms of like developing the sort of project that I want to work on for my applications, you know, saying, Oh, I want to study these things. Um, and it's also helped me because it's given me, like I've read a decent amount of secondary literature. So I had some idea of some of the people that I might be interested in working with going in. And then now I'm kind of developing that. Hmm. So that's the hardest part with grad school is finding someone to work with. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, especially like when you're doing something, you know, like in the humanities, um, you're going for like a PhD in history. It's almost like an apprenticeship. Like your advisor is everything. So that's cool. what I'm trying to look into right now is grad school. So we're, we're seeing, oh, yeah. see we're how that the, goes. Yeah. We're on the same boat then. <laughs> I think, well, um, what is it? One of the big challenges too, though, for me is just like for pre-modern history, you have to get um, readings in a lot of different types of documents and certain universities have the course offerings for that and others don't. And so if they don't have it, you've got to take the classwork somewhere else. And so you need to have money for that to do programs over the summer. Um, and so, you know, classical Japanese is just one component. There's also um, Kanbun, which is classical Japanese written as classical Chinese. Um, and then there's other types of writing like sorobun, which is a type of writing that a lot of samurai used for like documents. Um, and then, you know, like Buddhist texts, um, you know, a lot of religious texts, the characters are read differently. Um, and then, then there's, a, if you've, if you guys have ever seen like wall scrolls from like the 1600s or something, and it looks like oh, yeah. the equivalent of like cursive Japanese, you know, where it's like squiggle lines. Um, that's called Kuzushiji, and that's also something that you need to be able to read if you're doing like pre-modern studies. So there's like a lot of like coursework that, and depend if I get into a program, even if the advisor is good, they might not have class offerings for that. So I need to see how I can get training in some of those things. So there's a lot of like what ifs, um, and there's a lot of like language studies still out there for me moving it's forward. It's amazing how much that can like derail your plans. I know like before I started my undergrad, the program I wanted to go into, they're like, yeah, you can do it, but you have to take all these science classes. You have to take <laughs> all these science classes and you check and then like no schools in your local area. Like, and you're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess I'm not doing that now. Oh, man. Yep. Well, anyways, hey, Proton, thank you for coming on and uh, hope everybody enjoyed this. I know this is a little bit different than what we usually do. <laughs> but I'm sure it was a very informative time. Um, and again, I'm joined by uh, Umi and Proton. And Proton, where can we find you at? Yeah, um, I mean, my Twitter is at ProtonStorm. Um, and then I'm always on Anite, so you can always check out my stuff there. Right. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you for coming on.